right, welcome to day 275 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 10 through the end of chapter 5, and then Psalm 116 and Philippians 3. All right, let's get into Jeremiah chapter 4, starting in verse 10. Now, um, we've said a little bit about the historical background for um, some of the prophecy of Jeremiah. I have to confess that um, the stuff we read about today, it's it's difficult to pinpoint with any degree uh, of accuracy uh, when when it would have been when it would have been given. Not that we can really pinpoint a lot of them with a lot of degree of accuracy, but just want to keep that in mind. Um, is this something from later in his ministry? Is it something from early in his ministry? It's hard to know. But the message, I think we can receive pretty clearly. So Jeremiah said, Ah, Lord Yahweh, in Hebrew, Ahach. I always like the, these Hebrew uh, interjections. Uh, Surely you have utterly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying, It shall be well with you, whereas the sword has reached their very life. Right? Like, it's not, we can't, we can't say that that's such a specific reference to something that has happened to place it def- definitely. Um, but uh, perhaps the puzzling thing here is this accusation, it sounds like an accusation on Je- on Jeremiah's part, and uh, it receives no kind of censure from the Lord, right, that the Lord deceives his people. Um, but um, this is probably kind of the first hint that we get of of something very characteristic of Jeremiah himself. And that is, like, if you compare him to some of the other prophets that we've seen, you don't really get a lot of their personality poking through. But with Jeremiah, you do. Uh, You get his anguish, uh, glimpses of it. And uh, over over both the burden that it is to have to be a prophet and to tell people these terrible acts of judgment, um, as well as his grief over what's going to happen. Now, make no mistake, this is coupled with a sincere devotion and love for the Lord, but um, you know he he often is wearing his emotions on his sleeve much more than we get in say Isaiah. Um, we 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 feel like we know more about um, uh, Jeremiah sometimes than we do about some of these other prophets, especially their internal workings. And certainly in his book, more physically happens to him um, compared to uh, some of the other prophets. And so what I think we have here is actually kind of like Jeremiah's um, personal kind of, uh, I don't want to say disbelief, but personal uh, struggle with this, right? Like, I, I know you've given hopeful prophecies through me, um, and yet and yet here we are, and this terrible thing is ca- happening, and again, we can't say exactly what that terrible thing is, and so like he's wrestling, like it feels, has God indeed deceived his people by by giving them promises of hope? Um, and you couple this maybe with some of these reforms that Josiah is doing. And remember, we hinted yesterday that maybe some of them, the people's hearts did not really turn um, as thorough, you know, even if the king was there. But of course, the king is chastised a little bit at times too, okay? But, um, but but even you know you can definitely understand someone saying like uh, look at all the good that has been done with the eradication of these images and these idols and yet we're still finding ourselves in trouble um, or you know did wasn't the promise that if we turned from these gods God would um, God would relent in his disaster that he is um, that he's proclaimed against us 
Or it may be, you know, maybe this dates from like after the time of Josiah when the kings start spiraling downward again. And, you know, it's like, you, you know, you're kind of looking back at the glory days of these reforms. Could be a lot of different options, but this is more of an emotional outburst of Jeremiah than it is like a serious charge against God for his honesty. Uh, so it goes on, at that time, it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a hot wind from the bare heights uh, in the desert toward the daughter of my people, not to winnow or cleanse. Okay, so wind was used as part of the winnowing process of wheat, but that's not what this wind is coming from. In fact, it's too full for this purpose, as the ESV puts it, which probably means something like it's much stronger, it's a stronger wind. Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. So you kind of get like this picture painted of a wind blowing and uh, and something is happening and uh, and it's a disturbing wind. And what is it that's causing these wind this wind? Behold, he comes up like clouds. His chariots like the whirlwind, his horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. Um, the he here, is this the Lord coming on the clouds, like one of those visions? Or is it or I, I don't I don't think so, because it's not God coming on the clouds. It's whoever it's the he is coming like clouds, like the whirlwind. This is the army that is coming. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. Okay, that's the only thing that can that can avert sure destruction. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge with you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims trouble from Mount Ephraim. These are these are places in the north. Okay, not only are they're in the north, but they're already fallen. So it's kind of like a double thing here, right? Like they're going to be the first ones to see these this army coming invading into the land. Warn the nations that he is coming. Announce to Jerusalem. Besiegers come from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah like keepers of a field. They are against her all around, right? Like people guarding their crops. Um, you, you don't uh, – people in fields are kind of uh, – um, you know, that's where plants belong. And these, you know, people are in field in, in, in among the crops to tend them and they may be set up setting up temporary shelters and stuff like that's how the this invading army is described here because she's rebelled against me declares Yahweh your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you this is your doom and it is bitter it has reached your very heart right so again it's hard to even place this in the time of Josiah because we don't have unless unless this is supposed to be Egypt trying to um, trying to to join forces with the remnant of Assyria in the, at the Battle of Carchemish, um, the, the, this is you know after Josiah's time that this that this uh, prophecy would be dated towards. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart, my heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet. Is this Jeremiah speaking? Is it perhaps um, kind of like a generic person um, experiencing this? Um, my, it, it, I think it's a little hard to tell. Uh, if it is Jeremiah, you know, again, it's it's how disturbed he is at seeing this this vision. Um, I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war, crash, following hard on crash. Right, it's just like mayhem. You you just hear the noise of war. Uh, the whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste, my curtains in a moment. How long must I see uh, the standard, the standard of the army, and hear the sound of the trumpet? 
Um, and then like God steps in and gives his reasoning for, or perhaps because my people are foolish. They know me not. They're stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. Okay. Which is always convicting, right? Like how well do you, some of us are very good at doing things that we know that the Lord hates. Um, but how to do good, they do not know. And then you you get this really interesting kind of vision of um, of Jeremiah speaking in verses 23 through 26, where you have a lot of creation imagery, but it's it's inverted. Remember how we described the flood as like a decreation? That's kind of like what you have here. So I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void. You only find that one other place in the Bible, tohu vabohu, and that's Genesis 1-2, right? It's it's at a pre-creation state. It's this, it's it's the the world that God has tamed, that God has subdued and put in order, that is now being reversed. That is how this judgment is being described. I looked to the heavens, right, which are also there in Genesis 1, and they had no light. Okay, what's the first thing God says? Let there be light. Now there's no light. Uh, and then you all, all the land that God created, right? The mountains are quaking, the hills are moving to and fro. And what's the pinnacle of God's creation? Well, I looked and behold, there was no man. Okay, so no people. Um, and uh, I I also think that there's you know kind of this play on the idea that um, God saw and then evaluated, right? Because here it's I looked, I looked, I looked. And in case you're wondering, yes, it is the same verb in Hebrew. It's a pretty common verb to see, ra'ah, right? But so a lot of this Genesis language here. Uh, and all the birds of the air had fled, and something else that's present in creation. And I looked, behold, the fruitful land, right? That's where, where God causes all these things to spring up, and uh, all these plants with their seed and their the fruit with the seed in it, right? The fruitful land is a desert. Its cities are laid in ruins, before Yahweh, before his fierce anger. So it's as it's as if it had never been created in the first place. For thus says Yahweh, the whole land shall be a desolation. And yet, and here we have the little sprinkling of hope, right? I will not make it, I will not make a full end. Uh, and we'll see that a couple other times today. For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. The, at the noise of the horsemen and archer, every city takes to flight. So everybody's like, forget this, we're out of here, we're going to go hide. So they enter thickets, they climb among rocks, um, the cities are empty, no man dwells in them, and you, O desolate one, what do you mean that you uh, that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold and enlarge your eyes with paint? And at first, this sounds like we're getting get an, an indictment against wealth, but look what it says. In vain you beautify yourself, your lovers despise you, they seek your life. So it seems as if what uh, what they're actually doing here, is, what this is actually speaking to, is that they're trying to entice um, others into alliances. Hey, do you want? Uh, it would be really attractive to, um, uh, to 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 have one another's back here, right? And here are all the things we have going for us, and maybe we can stand against these invaders. No, that any effort to do that, God says, is in vain. For I heard a cry as of a woman in labor, anguish as of one giving birth to her first child, the cry of the daughter of Zion gasping for breath. 
right? This this woman in, in terrible pain giving birth to a children, and that's what that's what the cry of Zion is like, crying out in anguish, stretching out her hands, woe is me, for I am fainting before murderers. And this seems pretty harsh until we see what God is saying at the beginning of verse 5, right? Run to and fro throughout the streets of Jerusalem, look and take note, search her squares to see if you can find a man, one man who does justice and seeks truth that I might pardon her. Uh, is there any hint of justice there at all? This is a very uh, very reminiscent of Abraham's pleading with Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Like, what if this number of righteous people are found there? And what if this number are? If there's one, maybe we start talking about relenting from this, but there's not. And it's and 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 we're talking about justice here. Those those who do right. Um, though they say, as the as Yahweh lives, yet they swear falsely. So here violating the third commandment at the very least, right? They're lifting. Yahweh's name up to falsehood there. They swear by him, and but in order to, to convince people of lies. Um, o Yahweh, do not your eyes look for truth. You have struck them down, uh, but they felt no anguish. You've consumed them, but they refuse to take correction. They've made their faces harder than rock. They've refused to repent. This is that theme that we see a lot in the prophets where uh, God brings difficulty upon his people in order to turn them back to himself. And yet they're they're stubborn and they refuse to do that. Then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense for they do not know the way of Yahweh, the justice of their God, right? Look, more of Jeremiah's prophecy, right? Like you don't tend to get like conversations with God in the prophets, but here this is what we have, right? And, and so Jeremiah's like, you know, surely like, it's the people who don't know any better, right? It's people who aren't learned. Uh, maybe we need to teach them a little bit and everything. Um, and uh, and so I'll go to the great and I'll speak to them for they know the way of Yahweh, the justice of their God, but they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. So from poor to wealthy, from the lowest in the city to the highest in the city, uh, they are like an ox who has rebelled against uh, the yoke that is on it. Therefore, a lion, and remember the uh, the invading army has been compared to a lion in 2.15 and 4.7. In the first one, it seems to be Assyria, and the second one, uh, perhaps we're talking about Babylon, uh, but the army from the north, Jeremiah likes comparing with a lion. Uh, Therefore, a lion from the forest shall strike them down. But not only a lion here, right? Also, a wolf, a leopard, okay? Um, uh, everyone who goes out to them will be torn in pieces, so this is this is uh, um, when when you're in a siege, right? You the 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 army is trying to trying to get into the city, and uh, one of the things they can do, you know, if people come out, if people defect, they have the option of you know showing them mercy and saying, "Oh, look how awesome it is if you come out." But a much more terrifying thing is that even if you leave, we're going to kill you. So the only thing you could do is open your gates and uh, and let us in. Um, and this appears to be what's what's going on in what's being described in this verse. Because their transgressions are many, their apostasies are great. This is why the city will be besieged like this. How can I pardon you? Okay, you're, None of you have, have turned back to me. Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery. So when I was being good to you, they were they were 
they were going off and worshiping uh, false gods, and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, okay? Uh, when things were awesome here, each one neighing for his neighbor's wife. What an image there, right? Like each one like wishing he could be with, with someone else's wife. Uh, Shall I not punish them for these things, declares Yahweh? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Go up through her vine rows and destroy. But then we have again, uh, as we saw in 427, uh, make not a full end. Okay, so just these drip, drip, drip drops of little drops of hope. Uh, strip away her branches, for they're not Yahweh's. Uh, the vineyard, we're kind of reminded of Isaiah's image of a vineyard here, right? From Isaiah 5. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares Yahweh. They've spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, and and here is this kind of like the attitude that people have taken towards Yahweh. He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine, right? They, they were well-fed, lusty stallions, right? And they're not worried because they think God is going to do nothing. Hey, it's been, we've been, we've done, been doing this and we've been fine so far. And, and not only that, but also the prophets will become wind. The word is not in them. Thus it shall be done to them. So not only is God not going to do anything, but his prophets are full of baloney and empty threats. Um, Therefore, thus says Yahweh, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. That's what Jeremiah's words to them will be like. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares Yahweh. It's And what kind of nation is it? <clears throat> it's an enduring nation. It's ancient. Uh, so, you know, it's it's been around for a long time. It's, it's not just this fly-by-night operation. Um, it's a language, it's a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. This was noted by Isaiah in 3319, where the invading army is described as a people of an obscure speech that you cannot understand, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. And we noted there that, like, how, like, kind of scary that is, right? They're going to do anything they want to you, basically. And, like, you can't even understand what they're saying. And, uh, and, and those are the people to whom they'll be sent in exile. And so, you know, here again, this, this language you cannot understand. I remember I actually, <laughs> when I was learning uh, the Akkadian language in seminary, which is the uh, basic, the general term for the uh, language that was spoken uh, by, you know, written, spoken slash written by the Assyrians and then, and then by, in Babylon as well, although Babylon also used a lot of imperial Aramaic. I remember it's a very difficult language to learn, and this is the verse that I wrote on my binder, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. <clears throat> Their quiver is like an open tomb. In other words, it's, there's plenty of room, okay, vacancy, they are all mighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. So here now they're going to devour everything that's in the land. They're going to eat up worse than the food, right? Your sons and your daughters. They're going to eat up your flocks, your herds, your vines, your fig trees, and the fortified cities in which you trust, right? They're strong. They can't get us in here. They shall be beat down with the sword. And then here we have 
this drizzle of hope once again. And it's the same thing that we've, we saw in, back here in verse 10 and then from 427. Uh, but even in those days, declares Yahweh, I will not make a full end of you. And when your people say, why has Yahweh our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served gods in your land, so shall you serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. Basically, the idea is you like serving foreign gods. You like, you know, the things of foreign nations so much. Here you go. You're going to have all that you, you can handle. Declare this in the house of Jacob, proclaim it in Judah, hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Uh, usually idols are described this way, like the other day in Psalm 115.5, remember that? But now it's the people who are like that. Do you not fear me, declares Yahweh, do you not tremble before me? Um, I placed the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it, right? I'm the one who did that. I, the, the sea, the ocean, the Mediterranean Sea cannot thwart my will. What makes you think that you can, okay? This people has a stubborn and rebellious heart against me. They've turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear Yahweh our God who gives us rain in season, uh, the autumn rain and the spring rain, right? The God who actually cares for us, who actually is the source of blessing. They don't fear him. Um, he's the one who keeps for us weeks appointed for the harvest and makes sure that our, our crops come up. Your iniquities have turned these away, these things of blessing that would normally be coming to you, and your sins have kept good from you. For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men like a cage full of birds. Their houses are full of deceit. Okay, like that's that, right? The, the house of the wicked here, it's like a cage full of birds, but instead of birds, it's deceit. Um, they, they've grown fat and sleek. They're great and rich. Okay, they know no bounds to their deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. They do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares Yahweh? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? And this is like, I think should be super convicting for us all, super convicting for nations and individuals, right? That 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 those who do not treat the fatherless and the needy, right, and do not care for their rights, right? What is God's attitude towards, toward, towards such people? And we see it here in Jeremiah, and if we think that for some reason we are exempt from this, uh, the day will come when God will avenge that upon us as well. An appalling and horrible thing that has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, um, so we've seen them wanting to shut up real prophets, right, and and be like, oh, these guys are are these guys are just blowing hot air, um, and now, but there are prophets there, and they they're the the ones that they're listening to are prophesying falsely, and the priests are like, oh, pro th those prophets are awesome. Let's listen at them. Let's rule at their direction. My people love. And my people love it. They love it. They love just these prophets tickling their ears and the priests ordering the religious duties after their advice. Um, what will you do when the end comes? 
Okay, let's go now to Psalm 116. Psalm 116, I think, is kind of like refreshing in light of some of the stuff that we've read in Jeremiah today. Um, it's it's just a wonderful psalm of praise to God. I love Yahweh uh, because uh, right. It's not just praise God. It's it's notice how 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 personal that is, right? I love Yahweh because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. He inclined his ear to me, and I will call on him as long as I live. And this essentially is the theme of the psalm, right? That God listens to me, and he helps me, and therefore I will call upon him. And that that phrase is repeated throughout this psalm, I will call upon him as long as I live. And it's not just a, a, a flash in the pan thing, right? It's a lifelong, it's a lifelong perseverance. Paul will talk about that today in Philippians as well. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. Kind of sounds like what Jonah said in the belly of the fish, right? But here you get it from someone who genuinely loves Yahweh. Um, I suffered distress and anguish, and then I, and here it is again, called on the name of Yahweh. O Yahweh, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is Yahweh and righteous, and our God is merciful. Okay, I like that, right? Because it's it's here you have these attributes of God where, uh, well, first of all, the fact that he's mentioning grace and mercy, right, means that I'm someone who needs it, means that I'm someone who acknowledges my sin, and so this attribute of righteousness is frightening to me because I don't want to be the object of his judgment. But I, I turn to him and I call upon him and he is gracious and merciful to me. And so I can celebrate his righteousness, yes, and I can also celebrate his grace and his mercy. Yahweh preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Okay, I don't. you don't have to be super knowledgeable. You don't have to be super fancy, uh, very uh, ultra-spiritual, really know a lot of stuff, right? The simple he preserves. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for Yahweh has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before Yahweh in the land of the living. Notice these different metaphors, right? Returning to my rest, uh, walking before Yahweh, calling upon Yahweh's name. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. So just acknowledge, sometimes I, you know, you feel like uh, it might be wrong to acknowledge that you're experiencing some kind of affliction, right? But that's not antithetical with belief, right? God wants, the, God wants that honesty. God wants to hear that. And there's nothing wrong or ungodly about acknowledging uh, misery and affliction, um, I believed even when I said that, the psalmist says. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars, right? The one that I am going to trust in is God. What shall I render to Yahweh for all his benefits to me? I will lift it. Uh, so what is the fitting response to God's goodness? Well, I will lift up the cup of salvation. Lift up probably here means something like make it known. And and here it is again, call upon the name of Yahweh. I will pay my vows to Yahweh in the presence of his people, right? That, that is what, what honors God in exchange for his goodness to us, right? It's not paying him back or anything. It's, 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 it's calling upon him, lifting up the cup, making known that cup of salvation, and doing, essentially doing what you said to God that you were going to do, what you told God you were going to do. 
uh, precious, or perhaps we could say valuable, right? The word sometimes means costly as well. In the sight of Yahweh is the death of his saints, right? Our lives are not nothing to him. They, they matter greatly. Oh, Yahweh, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. And, and again, this is the fitting response. I will offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Uh, and, and for the last time in the psalm now, call upon the name of Yahweh. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, just like it said in verses 13 and 14, in the courts of the house of Yahweh, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise Yahweh. Okay, let's go now to Philippians chapter 3. Um, the first verse of this chapter is uh, kind of like a hanging verse. It's got it's uh, not super tightly tied to what will come after or what is said before, uh, but it sure is a good verse. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Okay, so um, he's told them to do this already in 2.28, right? And uh, kind of uh, he will again in four verse 4, and I, I think I noted yesterday how uh, extraordinary it is uh, how how much Paul talks about joy and rejoicing, especially in the circumstances that he finds himself in. But now here he wants them to rejoice in the Lord. And again, like I said with the beginning of the psalm today, right? I love Yahweh. The idea, like, it's 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 joy is not like an optional component of the the Christian walk, right? Loving the Lord is not an optional component. Like that's central, okay. And if there's no if there's no joy in your walk with the Lord, that is an issue. That is something that you know needs to be addressed, and um, that's not something we should be content with. Of course, it could be owing to a lot of different things. So like specific advice, kind of depends on why you don't have joy in the Lord. But here we see that this is an exceedingly important thing. And so Paul says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. Like, I just got to put my pen down and, right, and remind you again. Um, and it's so worth it because, and he says, it's safe for you, which is an interesting way of putting it, right? Um, another, the other glosses for that word safe there might be, it makes you solid, it makes you stable, it makes you firm. Your joy does. And why is that? Because the one who finds joy in the Lord is the one who will remain in the Lord, the one who will be content in him. Okay, that's why joy is not an optional part of the Christian life. If you're just miserable in following Jesus, then, you know, you're kind of a ticking time bomb. Uh, as soon as something comes along that you think is going to bring you more joy than him, hey, I'm going to go, because we gravitate towards that which we think makes us happy. But if your happiness and if your joy are found in him, then it is, it, it is, that is something that, that, that's what makes you a solid, stable, firm Christian. And then he tells them, look out for the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. So you kind of have this trifecta of things that characterize someone that Paul wants them or a group of people that Paul wants them to look out for. And it really seems, and by the context, I think this is vindicated, <laughs> that um, that he is talking here of he, what he is doing is uh, the way the, commenta uh, the commentator Peter O'Brien puts it in his commentary of Philippians is it, he, 
he um, these are inversions of Jewish boasts, right? So they would typically call Gentiles dogs. They would typically look at Gentiles as the evildoers, but they are actually the ones who are. And what is what is meant by dogs here? Um, a lot of things this might might be suggestive of, but I think um, the kind of like the fundamental. Um, thing that we can say for sure is that in first century Judaism, they are regarded as unclean, right? Because they just go around and eat everything and touch everything and stuff. So dogs are. So the ones who are truly are clean, unclean are the people I'm about to talk about. Because we, in fact, are the circumcision. Notice the inversion there. They say that they're the circumcision. We're actually the circumcision. And guess what? A lot of us still have foreskins, <laughs> right? We are the circumcision and what, why? Because what makes you truly the circumcision? Remember yesterday, circumcise, the, circumcise your hearts, and, and we noted that Paul talks about that in Romans. Um, uh, uh, Deuteronomy 30 talks about it. Okay, we are the circumcision, and why? Because we worship by the Spirit of God, we glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Our confidence is not in the fact that, that some... Uh, that some foreskin has been removed from us. Uh, but if you want to talk about confidence in the flesh, let's talk about confidence in the flesh, because I myself have plenty of reason for it. So basically, Paul is here throwing around his Jewish street cred, right? Like that that anybody who thinks that who wants to talk from that perspective, if they think that 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 they're in a place to do so, I am more so, and I'm telling you that stuff doesn't matter, right? So then he starts li listen, listing his credential, okay? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Notice he keeps on like zeroing in and like a target, right? Like like, like more and more. Um, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, 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 as to the law, okay? Uh, as to obeying the law, not only did I obey the law, I was, the, I was a Pharisee. Okay, as to zeal, and remember, zeal is often linked with Phinehas uh, and, and Elijah being willing to bring harm to others who are harmful to the community of God's people. Uh, so, um, I, I, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, doing what the law said, blameless, which of course, when we read blameless in the Bible does not mean totally without any sin, right? Like when we read that about Noah, for example, it's not, or, or Job, um, it's not saying that they never did any sin, right? But comparatively speaking, very hard to find fault with. But whatever gain I had from any of these things, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ Jesus. Now, why are these things loss, right? Because most of them are not bad in and of themselves and can be, as I think Paul would admit and does admit in Romans 2, right, is, is of great value. Um, of course, the persecutor of the church thing, probably not, but like everything else. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that from the perspective of the gospel, these things that give you, these things are, are, are loss because um, especially in his pre-conversion state, but maybe now when he starts feeling, you know, looking back and thinking, you know, I, I really am a good guy, right? What that does is it gives you, they, they, they are reasons for confidence in the flesh and that keeps you away from Christ, right? For, for, for all of Paul's life before Christ, he thought that these things meant that he was fine with God, that he was right with God. 
and it took the Damascus Road experience to shake him from that uh, from that false belief. Uh, but these are the things that that were loss to me, and that if I do start glorying in them again, um, uh, will will be of loss to me uh, again. Um, so I've, I've counted all of these things as loss for the sake of Christ. And indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I love that, right? So everything else in, in life is as if it is nothing, is as if it's, it's negative, right? Compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, um, as shallow as sometimes people think it is to speak of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. And he says everything is lost compared to that, to the fact that I get to know Jesus Christ uh, because of what he has done. And um, and again, the, the, so, like I think you have some important things today, right? Like what is the target of the Christian life? What do I aim for? Do I aim for like some task I'm trying to do uh, for the kingdom of God? Or do I, am I aiming for stopping some sin that I struggle with, right? Is that my objective? Or are those objectives actually um, kind of a byproduct of shooting for what is primary? I love the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, know Christ Jesus, right? If those are the, because if we're shooting for other stuff, that even if it's good stuff, like that's not what really generates power in a walk with God. What generates the power, what gives the fuel are these things. Um, for, and, 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 and you can see what this his pursuit of knowing Jesus has meant for him. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, right? This is, Paul's life has cost him. Paul's life of walking with Jesus has cost him. But you know what? Uh, all those things that I've lost, you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Okay? I count all these other things, the things I just named, the things I've lost because I follow Jesus, kind of reminds me of what David Livingstone, the missionary explorer of Africa, said um, towards the end of his life about all the things he had given up in order to um, you know, open Africa up to world missions. And he said, uh, someone asked him about this, this life of sacrifice, and he said, I never made a sacrifice. And um, and he says, so, and Paul says, I count them as rubbish, which everyone, you know, who looks into this kind of gets a kick out of this word. He calls, he says, he counts them as scubala, uh, or from the, from the term scubalon in, in Greek. And this means rubbish. Yes, it means garbage. Uh, but it even can mean manure. It can even mean human feces. If there's something close to like a cuss word in the New Testament, this might be it. Um, I count them as, uh, one commentator actually says, I count them as crap compared to gaining Christ um, and, be and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. God's not like, oh, look at all these things you've given up. Good job, right? No, the righteousness that I have is not something that I achieved. Um, uh, and I certainly didn't achieve it from obeying the law, obeying God's moral commands, but rather that which comes through faith in Christ, right? Again, how does righteousness come? It comes through faith. The righteousness 
from God, righteousness that is given me by God that depends on faith. So it's a righteousness that is not my own. It is righteousness that is alien to me, and God gives it to me because of my faith in Christ. Um, and then he kind of he kind of trails off, and and he's back to this that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. Right. So uh, this this goes back to right what after he mentioned rubbish. Right. I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and then be found in him, not having the righteousness of my own, and that I may, and as he said, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, that I may know him and know the power of his resurrection, experience that power in my life, and share in his sufferings, becoming like him even in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And here, it's not as if Paul doesn't know what it takes, right? It takes faith, clinging to Jesus. But Paul here does not have this attitude of like, oh, you know what? I believed in Jesus on the Damascus Road, and so I'm good. Doesn't really. No, he realizes that saving faith by definition is faith that perseveres throughout life, right? And wherever his life takes him, he wants to cling to that with everything he has. And so that whatever means possible— right? It, it means something here like, whatever it takes, uh, the, this work out your salvation with fear and trembling, chapter 2, verse 12, right? Whatever it takes, I I want to live this life of faith and remain true to Jesus that I may attain resurrection from the dead. This is, I think, a healthy view of, of um, you know, the, the question of once saved, always saved, right? Like, that if we confess that, if we do believe that, that doesn't mean that it's just this easy believism. Like, oh yeah, because I prayed a prayer once or because I raised my hand when the pastor was praying or something like that. No, he doesn't look back on that. that. That is not evidence of your salvation. That's evidence of a decision you made. The evidence of your salvation is you're continuing in your faith. And sometimes that looks like a struggle. Sometimes that looks like a challenge. Sometimes this looks like working it out in fear and trembling. Okay. Because notice, Paul does not say, look, I'm good because I did something a couple years ago. No, he says, look at his attitude. Not that I've already obtained this or am I already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own, okay? It's like, it's like he's resting in the arms of Jesus. Jesus has made me his own, but I'm going to press on to make it my own. So I'm living out this life that I have, working hard for the cross, for the gospel, but really for knowing Christ Jesus, okay? That's me pressing on all the time in the arms of Jesus because he's made me his own and he's got a grip on me. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, okay? I'm not resting on my laurels, it's even in my faith, right? Like, I, oh, I was really devoted in my 20s or something. No, one thing I do, forgetting what lies be behind, both my sin and my righteousness, his eyes are fully forward, straining forward to what lies ahead. My assurance of salvation is not in a decision I made years ago. My, my assurance is, is on the fact that my eyes are straight ahead, and I'm following Jesus. I'm pursuing him and knowing him, and my faith is in him now, and, it, and, and, and I will press on so that it always will be. Um, 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And you know what? This is how people who are mature in their faith think. Let those who are mature think this way. And if anything, in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So the proper attitude towards uh, my faithfulness thus far is I want to be true to that. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes who walk according to the example you have in us, right? We learn by imitation. For many of whom I've told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Like can, maybe the first maybe the first copy, the, the actual letter that Paul sent had teardrops on it in this point, um, you know, because of this reality that some walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, by which he might mean just unbelievers, straight up unbelievers, but he also might mean other, you know, people whom we thought were believers, but who fell away. Um, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship, the place that is truly our home, is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, and here is that ultimate Christian hope, right? I would say it's not to be disembodied spirits on clouds, but he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, right? That this is this hope of resurrection, that our bodies will be like Jesus's by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So as sure as that is, so is our hope of resurrection. Okay, that's it for today. As always, thanks for being with me, and I look forward to being with you tomorrow. And until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.